Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Sam Dolby, and this is Ottoman New York. New York, a city that some love, others love so much that they wear shirts proclaiming their love of it, and still others love so much that they wear shirts proclaiming their love of it while taking photos of squirrels. I saw that happen a few days ago. Whatever your feelings toward the metropolis or its adulatory outerwear, it's difficult to ignore. The city is the birthplace of no shortage of world historical figures, and no shortage of world historical figures have called it home. A hopelessly abbreviated list of those who fall into one of those two categories includes such luminaries as Eleanor Roosevelt, Sonia Sotomayor, Leon Trotsky, Malcolm X, and Larry David. There are no Ottomans on that list, and there are no Ottomans, as far as I can tell, in the various anthemic odes to the Big Apple. Not in Frank Sinatra's New York, New York. Not in Taylor Swift's Welcome to New York. The closest we come to the Ottoman Empire is with Jay-Z and Alicia Keys and Empire State of Mind. Okay, Dwayne Wade and other people name-dropped in the song aren't secretly Ottomans, but at least the title mentions Empire, right? Nevertheless, as will likely be no surprise to you, dear listeners, Ottomans have been a part of New York history from even before it became called New York. And today we'll bring you their stories. We'll also bring you stories of how Americans imagined the Ottoman Empire and its residents. Amidst these tales of migration, community, racism, and identity, we'll find connections to Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, the American Civil War, and the architecture around Washington Square Park. And finally, we'll explain how one of the descendants of the House of Osman, the family that ruled a great swath of the world for six centuries, ended up in a walk-up apartment on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Our journey in this episode will have a guide, and the person leading us through the turnstiles and across the grid will be Bruce Burnside, a dear friend, an intrepid wanderer, and a new dad. Bruce is a PhD student in anthropology and education at Teachers College in New York City. He has previously been a tour guide in Berlin, and he currently has his own tour podcast of New York City called City Between, and we'll provide more information about that project later. The first stop on this journey is the foundation of the City Hall of New Amsterdam, which of course was the name of New York while it was under Dutch control in the early to mid-17th century. Muslims were there from the beginning, most notably among people, enslaved and otherwise, who found their way to the city from West Africa. In this segment, we'll focus on someone from North Africa who gained notoriety in New Amsterdam. In a story about race and the silences that permeate this topic in American history, we'll even find a link to one of the most storied figures in 20th century American life. It starts on Pearl Street. 
Okay, not much sunlight here. Not much sunlight here. There's a few 19th century buildings uh, around on this corner to give it some character, but otherwise many other skyscrapers blocking away all that sun. Now, the city hall itself, the Dutch city hall, they never even found those ruins. They were done away with at some point, but they did helpfully trace out where that city hall stood in yellow brick. It's not very well marked, but if you come down here looking for it, you can get a sense of how big that city hall was, the Dutch city hall. Um, you only have to remember that here on Pearl Street, once upon a time, that used to be the waterfront. Today, it's three blocks away, the East River. Uh, so over a couple hundred years, the city kept expanding the land further and further out. And what does this have to do with Ottoman history, Bruce? Well, we have the odd story that most likely, most probably, uh, there was a Muslim in the New Amsterdam, New Netherland colony uh, by the name of Anthony Jansen van Saleh, otherwise known as the Troublesome Turk. Tell us more about this Troublesome Turk. Well, as you can probably sense from the name, it doesn't sound very Turkish. Uh, and indeed, Anthony Janssen's father was Dutch. His name was Jan Janssen, hence Anthony Janssen's name. Uh, his father was from Harlem. Okay, so that's not Harlem in New York City. No. The Harlem in New York City is, of course, named after the one in the Netherlands. Um, and his father was a pretty famous pirate. And he was down there in the Mediterranean, preying on all kinds of ships and... As wasn't so uncommon at the time, he was captured uh, by Algerian pirates. And after capture, he was forced to convert to Islam, uh, which he seems to have done without perhaps too much protest, uh, because he then began working himself as an Algerian pirate out of the Algerian port. And what about this part of his name that suggests he might be from Saleh? Well, indeed, um... Jan Janssen, after he converted, he took on a new name, Murat Rice, and eventually got tired of working for the Algerians and hence at least in nominal tribute to the Ottoman Sultan. So he went around to the Atlantic seaboard to the Moroccan town of Saleh, where he essentially became the kind of de facto ruler of what was basically a pirate town, though they themselves gave tribute to the Moroccan Sultan. Uh, and it was in Saleh that he seems to have married a young Moorish girl, um, and that young Moorish girl was probably Anthony Jansen's mother. Okay, and, wh and what do we mean by Moorish in this context? How do we translate that into terms we're more familiar with today, perhaps? Well, some of today's story is coming from Peter Lamborn Wilson's book, uh, Pirate Utopias. And he suggests that more that Moorish designation, um, we don't really have much more evidence. So we don't know if that really meant someone recently exiled from Spain, the kind of Moorish Christians being suspected of being secretly Muslim, or if it meant more of a cultural phenomenon. Uh, it doesn't seem so much to have linked um, hard and fast to a race at that time, for example. Um, but it, it definitely meant some link with the world of Al-Andalus and, and the Moroccan uh, Sultanate. Okay, so this is the father and mother of this troublesome Turk in New Amsterdam, is that right? That's exactly right. And we don't know exactly how, but somehow or another, Anthony Jansen and actually his brother, Abraham, ended up here in New Amsterdam. We almost know nothing about his brother, Abraham. We only know that he uh, moved across the East River to what's now Brooklyn, to Wallabout Bay, where the Brooklyn Navy Yard is today, that he married an African-American woman. And we know that he left her his property when he died, uh, but they almost completely disappear from the historical 
registers that at that point. Uh, this is American history, and so there's a, you know, a lot of denial and um, forgetting and just sheer lack of evidence due to the kind of racialized nature of American history. Right. And what do we know about uh, Anthony Jensen himself? Did, did he do something to get this nickname of the Troublesome Turk? Was he in fact troublesome or is this just people being racist and liking alliteration? Um, most certainly they liked alliteration. I mean, that definitely worked. Uh, and let's just, the Turk part, probably that was sort of the European euphemism at the time for a Muslim. And it's almost our best evidence that we have that he was actually a Muslim of some sort. We don't have much else. Um, but Anthony Jansen, he got married as well. But he married um, a white Dutch woman who happened to be the most famous prostitute in New Amsterdam. Her name was Greti Rainiers. And turns out that both of them were quite the handful. They made up uh, somewhere between 10 and 50 per- 10 and 15 percent of all of the court cases that came to the Dutch City Hall that we're standing next to. Um, so, so you're saying that they actually set foot on this ground? Oh, absolutely. They live nearby. He owned property north of what's now just Wall Street, and they kept getting in trouble for all sorts of things. And um, they would be cursing someone in the street or it was property disputes or somebody wasn't paying what they promised they were going to pay. Um, and we do know at one point that there was a dispute over the parentage of one of his wife's babies. Um, and to settle the issue, the midwife um, said that the baby actually appeared somewhat brown. And what she meant was that that then linked it to the father. So that's the only slightly indirect evidence we have of Anthony Jansen's skin color. So, of course, we know in the early modern world that categories of race and difference were much more malleable than they would become uh, in today's world um, and, you know, in, in the 19th century as well. So we, on the one hand, we get a glimpse of this sort of uh, melting pot of sorts that was early uh, New York. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I mentioned, you know, there was about 18 languages being spoken here. Certainly a lot of the Dutch traders and colonists um, who were heavily male definitely had children with um, the Lenape and other Indian groups. Um, It's not that there wasn't hierarchies or things we might think of as a kind of proto-racial America that we could read back into, but absolutely, this is a freewheeling colony. it's not entirely certain what the future is going to be, and people are moving in all kinds of odd directions. Um, okay, so what direction does Anthony Jansen move in? Well, eventually all the court cases and everything just becomes too much for New Amsterdam. And that's, again, it's just lower Manhattan below what's today's Wall Street. It's not that big of a city yet. So they get banished to a far away place called Brooklyn, right? Terrifying prospect. Terrifying prospect. They have to go across the water and they go down to what's now basically the Gravesend section of Brooklyn. That's the kind of south shore connecting into what's now Coney Island. And he set up a big farm there and it was called the Turks Plantation. Very nice. And do we know what happened to him after being banished to Brooklyn? Well, it seems that, you know, he, of course, had lots of lawsuits out there with his neighbors, uh, though he seemed to get along well with his Quaker neighbor, Lady Moody. Um, And eventually his wife, Grichi, the famous prostitute, dies, and he moves back into New Amsterdam. And then 
1664, the English take over the colony, and presumably he gave the oath of allegiance. And he seemed to um, die just around the corner from here on Broad Street, uh, a gentleman, a man of means. Uh, the last time he got in trouble was for harboring a Quaker, so take that for whatever you would. So Anthony Jensen seems to found one of the families through intermarriage with the, Anglo the English elite, one of those Anglo-Dutch families that's going to go on to help um, found the kind of powerful families of New York City and of the United States, including the Roosevelts, the Skirmerhorns, the Stuyvesants. Uh, these are, all, of course, all still prominent names in New York City today. Um, and one of those descendants, actually, uh, was Jackie Kennedy. Was she proud of that lineage? She actually was aware of it, uh, which is maybe uh, something we should, you know, uh, remember. But she was... Uh, the reason we even know um, that she was aware of it is because right when her husband's administration started, they were campaigning for the Civil Rights Act. And some of the campaigners came to her and they said, uh, you know, uh, First Lady Kennedy, you have an African ancestor, Anthony Jansen Fonsalet. This is amazing. Can we use this for our campaign for civil rights? And she basically said no. <laughs> and they, you know, she didn't like that they were suggesting that he was a Muslim. She actually said that they were confused and that he was Jewish. Um, we don't even know where she got that story from or what evidence she might have had. But right, but clearly the racial lines had, had been drawn yes. in a different way. Yes, and that was a little too much uh, to suggest he was African um, and to link him through that kind of racial struggle, which, you know, presumably she was sympathetic to, but still a little too much. But in the very early 1900s, another one of Anthony Jansen's ancestors was uh, looking for information and evidence uh, of his ancestor. And what they found out was that in the 1880s, another descendant of the family uh, had discovered in his attic a book with some odd, quirky writing in it, and he had no idea what it was. He then sold that book to another family member who thought, he also didn't know what it was, but he thought it was interesting. So he began taking it around town, showing it to everybody, and eventually he was pointed to what was called a curiosity shop in Trenton, New Jersey, uh, which was run by a Jewish man who went by the name Jerusalem. And Jerusalem quickly identified the book as a Quran. Uh, there was also a brass... Uh, kind of tea kettle sort of thing uh, that was part of the family heirlooms. Um, and that uh, descendant decided to sell these items to Jerusalem uh, for $50. Uh, and he paid the first $25 down. And then before he could collect the second half, Jerusalem died. The Quran disappeared. And we have no idea where it went. But we're assuming this was probably Anthony Jansen's Quran. So... If you have any information, let us know. <laughs> Our next stop involves us jumping some 150 years to a time when not only had New York become New York, but it was also becoming one of the booming ports of the nascent United States of America. To explore New York's Ottoman legacy, or as you'll see, what we might call an anti-Ottoman legacy, we're going to move about two miles north of Pearl Street to Washington Square Park, which is today home to New York University. A huge population of local residents, tourists, students, performers by day, and a terrifyingly large population of rats by night.
Creek, Washington Square. Transfer here for the A to C and the E at the level B, D service on this level. So, Bruce, we're sitting in Washington Square Park. What does this have to do with the Ottoman Empire? Well, maybe nothing. But I actually want to try to make an argument and convince you that, in fact, one of the major icons of this square does have an Ottoman connection. And that is the beautiful Greek revival townhouses on the north side of the square. Okay, so I can see them uh, on the, n- the north, north edge of the square. I, l- I can look toward them across the waves of NYU students walking to class or lunch through the trees across a playground. I can see these red brick buildings, most of them NYU administrative buildings, and they have some columns on their facades yeah it's pretty subtle the what we call greek revival but those columns are important the kind of classical proportions the cornices above the columns over the doorway um this is typically what's referred to as greek revival architecture it's very familiar throughout the united states and elsewhere particularly with our civic buildings uh and things like banks libraries, those sorts of things. Right, uh, so Washington, D.C., and almost any prominent building in any small town in Absolutely, America. evoking those ideals, imagined ideals, perhaps, of ancient Greece. Okay, but what does this have to do with the Ottoman Empire? Well, these townhouses in particular, I think we need to know when they were built, and that's in the late 1820s. This is Manhattan's expanding at that time. New York City's borders are expanding. Where you and I are now sitting... Um, on the eastern side of Washington Square Park was a massive graveyard for the poor. There was about 20,000 bodies buried here, uh, and they're still buried here. Uh, It just got full. Okay. Uh, So they nicely covered it up and made it into a beautiful park and eventually into an iconic square. So that meant these houses were first erected here in the late 1820s. Now, as many of... Um, The listeners might know 1821 began a Greek struggle for independence on the Greek peninsula. And this captured the attention of people around the world. Absolutely. And also here in New York. Uh, Greek propagandists petitioned uh, John Quincy Adams, the Congress. They were looking for supporters here in the U.S. They made the case, you are inspired by ancient Greek democracy. Hey, We're also Greece. Uh, Let's get on board supporting our cause. We are under Ottoman slavery, right? That was the claim. Um, And New York got deeply involved. It was actually called Greek mania. Greek mania. What did that look like? It looked like lots of different things. Um, It kind of influenced fashion. Women sometimes wore what they thought were Greek-inspired, simpler Republican costumes. Uh, It inspired massive fundraising dinners uh, throughout the city to raise money to be sent to help the Greek cause. Um, At one of those dinners, a toast was raised, um, and the toast went like this. 
May the Grecian cross be planted from village to village and from steeple to steeple until it rests on the dome of St. Sophia. Okay, so this is referring to Hagia Sophia, which, of course, at that time is a mosque. Absolutely. <laughs> There's a clear religious dimension to the support of no the Greeks. No doubt. The, um, what a group calling themselves the Greek Ladies of Brooklyn raised a gigantic Greek cross on Brooklyn Heights. This is just opposite uh, Lower Manhattan, so everyone could see it. And it said, Sacred to the Greek Cause. Right? And... Um, just in Wallabout Bay in Brooklyn, in the Navy Yard, uh, they had a big commission of ships to be built to go fight for Greece. Uh, these were going to be owned by Greece. These weren't American. Uh, this was not the American Navy. Uh, young men volunteered to go fight. Uh, many in the medical corps. Of course, Lord Byron, the English poet, uh, once he joined that group fight, that's, was he was already a popular author and poet. And so that was a big galvanizing thing for the fashionable greek mania here in the city there's a sort of irony here too right because there aren't that many greek immigrants in the united states at this time I'm no guessing. it was and and the wasp elite of new york probably didn't look too kindly on anyone from that that part of the world we i think a lot of it had to do with the fantasy of ancient greece okay. right certainly there probably would have been more confusion for those who actually arrived in the you know, newly forged kingdom of Greece and probably found what we would consider maybe a more Ottoman place, right? Yeah. Athens, since the mid-1400s, had been under Ottoman control, sure. uh, for example. And, um, but this was the beginning of this kind of Greek nationalism uh, as a fight. Now, another big consequence of Greek mania here in New York City was to have Greek revival architecture, mm. right? It became the thing, all things Greek, including buildings, right? And a number of building firms started specializing in this architecture. So in the, as this long war drew out um, and New York kept up its, its part in propagating it and petitioning um, the Congress as well, houses like these in the northern part of this Washington Square Park uh, were built. So the case I'm ultimately making is that we call these Greek revival um, townhomes, but perhaps a better name would be the anti-Ottoman townhouses of Washington Square Park. So there you have it, Washington Square Park, center of anti-Ottomanism since the 1820s. So thus far, we've seen examples of racism and xenophobia that have characterized views of the Ottoman Empire and Muslims more generally. But as is so often the case, alongside antagonism, there lurks appropriation. And to explore this theme through the lens of clothing, we're going to move a few blocks west of Washington Square Park, where we'll visit an easily ignored historical marker to a person named Elmer Ellsworth. As I was just taking a picture of Ephraim um, Elmer Ellsworth's plaque, someone glanced at it thinking it maybe it was important if I was taking a picture of it. And then very quickly they decided it wasn't important enough to read. Should, should they have read it? <laughs> uh, I think only the uh, student of uh, <laughs> Ottoman history or culture oh. might even bother to pause at this okay. flagstaff even if you bother to pause it's difficult to even see and then read it 
Well, we're standing at the tip of Christopher Street Park in the West Village in Manhattan. And uh, most significantly, of course, on this park uh, is the Stonewall Inn, the National uh, Historic Monument, uh, or historic place, I should say, uh, commemorating the 1968 Stonewall Riots, which, of course, is kind of foundational for gay liberation in the United States. Um, but there's a couple of other monuments in this park. There's one to uh, uh, Civil War General Sheridan. Uh, there's the monument to gay liberation itself, uh, four figures further into the park. And then there is a kind of lonely flagstaff here at the tip of the park, which is dedicated to a young man who died in the Civil War, uh, whose name was Ephraim Elmer Ellsworth. Uh, something might spark your interest with this flagstaff. And that is the fact that uh, Ellsworth founded a military group uh, during the Civil War called the Fire Zuavis. Okay. Explain both of those words to me. I mean, I know what fire means, but I have no idea what it means in this context. Right. So actually, the, the, the Zuavis, uh, I first came across in the New York Historical Society. They had a strange Civil War uniform that was composed of a fez, a kind of... North African-looking jacket or vest uh, and kind of pantaloons. Okay, so this was some sort of vision of what people in the Muslim world dressed like. Yeah, so this is actually referring to a specific military group uh, in Algeria. Okay. Um, initially, it was a Berber group um, that were called the perhaps Zawawa. Pardon on any of my Berber pronunciation. And then that was translated, mispronunciated into French okay. as Zouaves. Okay. Uh, that group kept uh, its fighting reputation into French Algeria. Okay. They were always formally part of the French army, okay. uh, known as So this Zouaves. was sort of seen as an, a native auxiliary of the French military or, or groups of French soldiers who were dressed up like these yeah. uh, fierce warriors within Algeria. Something exactly. of that sort. And then it gets translated into America and into American history so that there were, in fact, Civil War soldiers who were wearing fezes. Exactly. And, I mean, we really have to understand this, that the Zouaves were the equivalent of the Green Berets. Okay. The equivalent of, in the vernacular, of just badasses. Okay. Right? When people thought about the military, they thought about people doing crazy, amazing, scary things. They thought about the Zouaves. And when uh, Ellsworth was training to be an officer, his uh, commander gave him a Zouavis manual okay. from the French army. Okay. And he was very inspired. And he came to New York when the Civil War started. And the fire part of the Zouavis is he came and he recruited soldiers from the fire departments in New York City to join uh, his brigade. And that was about 1,100 people. And so it wasn't that the, f the people in the fire department were already wearing fezes. They they started wearing fezes as they yeah. joined up. In fact, they El were Ellsworth's issued brigade. fezes okay. by the United States okay. Army. So <laughs> Sorry, I'm belaboring the yeah. fez point. It's just entrancing. <laughs> yes, they were sorry. red fezes with okay. blue tassels. Okay. Um, and in fact, there were 70 different Zouaves groups. Okay. Um, so this is a significant yeah. amount of people. And they had a slightly different fighting style. They mm -hmm. didn't march shoulder to shoulder. They tended to uh, kind of charge um, several arm lengths apart. Okay. They were, um, they would do it in double time. They had unusual way of loading their rifles when they needed a fire again. They would fall onto their backs and load 
their rifles on their backs and then roll over again to fire and charge once more. Um, so again, we see an American idea, perhaps borrowed from the French, of the fierceness of the yes. Muslim world. Or I mean, this like is a, tr- a translation at best. Right. Of, um, but we can kind of see this inner working of um, something from you know what was once part of the Ottoman Empire finding its way to this kind of iconic... Mm-hmm. Uh, war mm-hmm. in the United States sure. is going to divide the country in kind of uh, you know ways that we're still working through the consequences of today. Yeah, sure. Now, just a quick word about Ellsworth. The reason partly he got the monument, he was here in New York, and he was also the first kind of officer of his rank, as it says, to have been killed. And they were in D.C., and uh, right at the beginning of the war, and across the river in Alexandria, there was an inn flying the Confederate flag as a kind of... Mm-hmm you know, um, uh, gesture, I should say, to the sure. Union Army. Sure. So he took a little brigade over, his Zouaves, and they went over to take down the flag, and they went into the inn, and they told the innkeeper, you got to take down that flag. And he says, oh, it's just a bunch of, you know, Confederate rascals who were here. Uh-huh. I'll go take it down. Uh-huh. He went into a room, came back out with a rifle, and he shot oh Ellsworth. And, okay. him. and then one of Ellsworth's uh, Zouaves then killed the innkeeper. Okay. Um, and so Ellsworth was then kind of elevated to a heroic status mm-hmm. his zuavis would mm-hmm. you know scream remember ellsworth before they charged into battles but the fire zuavis went on to fight throughout the civil war okay so come here check out ellsworth's monument check out the stonewall inn there's also a store with lots of puppies bring your fats <laughs> By the late 19th century, the Ottoman world was no longer just a target of New Yorkers' scorn or wonder. Of course, these tendencies didn't go away, but by the 1880s, New York could boast for the first time a significant population hailing from the Ottoman Empire. It took the form of a diverse community that came to be referred to as Little Syria, composed of the many migrants, Christian and Muslim alike, who left Bilad Hashem in the late 19th century to find their fortunes elsewhere. When they came to New York, they gathered in Lower Manhattan's Washington Street, where they established shops, restaurants, coffee houses, newspapers, and cultural organizations. New York took notice. One newspaper story about the community in the late 1890s was suggestively titled, Red Fezzed Heads, Languorous Eyes. See what I said about scorn and wonder not going away? But of course, the fact that the community was there and not simply a group upon which to project fantasies meant that such descriptions could be challenged. As a subsequent New York Times article complained, there is nothing gorgeously romantic about this tussled, unwashed section of New York. And the article writer actually had a hard time finding both languorous eyes and red fezzes. The author of the article did, however, find a nice Syrian restaurant, the menu of which helpfully explained to potentially confused New Yorkers that okra was, quote, a vegetable resembling beans, unquote. Oh dear, ignorant of okra New Yorkers of the early 20th century, it is so much more than that. For more on Little Syria and what it looks like today, we'll go to Bruce. Well, we're standing on Washington Street, 
near the intersection of Washington and Rector. Uh, we're only about two or three blocks south of the World Trade Center site. So we are in Lower Manhattan. And so often in World Lower Manhattan, we are in the shadow of many skyscrapers. We're here because we're at the center of what was once um, the thriving colony of Little Syria. And we're standing in front of the two remaining buildings uh, in Manhattan that had something to do with Little Syria. Really lots of stores selling oriental wares and curiosities uh, and so forth. And there was also a church on that street. And in fact, it seems like that church is still here. Yeah, it's actually a, an older building from 1812, and it was made into a church in 1925 into the Syrian uh, Catholic Church of St. George's, uh, and it was given a brand new facade that gives it its churchy feel. There's a beautiful shot of St. George uh, killing the dragon on the facade. Uh, it's also changed from one denomination to another, from St. George's Catholic Church to St. George's Bar. Looks like they have some happy hour yeah. specials. And not to forget the Chinese restaurant, Tipsy Shanghai, on the second floor, right. which you can also visit right. today. Um, and it's probably uh, not so unusual that we're seeing a church. We know that many, if not most, of those Ottomans probably were Christians of one sort uh, or another. So next door to St. George, we have another building that looks kind of like your basic American colonial, vague style <laughs> from the 19th century. Ah, the, the well-known colonial vague style. Vague I, style. I'm, I'm seeing we some would, figures would, above the windows that, that look, they, they fit uncomfortably with the colonial vague style. And they fit uncomfortably with the idea of a little Siri as well. Yeah. And that's the, there's above the second floor windows, um, above the cornices, there is a Buddha above each of the five windows. Okay. Um, those Buddhas came later. They came in the 1960s when this briefly served as some kind of Zen temple for hippies. Okay, great. Um, probably more to our purposes are the American eagles above the cornices of the third floor windows. And so th those were probably in place at the time when this was yeah. a tenement building of sorts. This was actually or? built as a kind of community center. They okay. were very common at the time. They were very intentional and they were meant to help uh, assimilate immigrants in this one was set up for the little Syria colony there had been Irish immigrants here before so those Irish immigrants remaining uh, in the neighborhood uh, would have also have used this but this is a place to you know have language classes cooking classes hygiene classes all the classic American assimilation stories of the late 19th century so on the topic of assimilation uh, the community on Washington Street, like most migrant communities anywhere, tried to strike a balance between their connections to home and their connections to the community around themselves. So if you look at the newspaper reports in New York about this community, you will see in August of 1908 that there were reports of plans to raise money to purchase a battleship for the Ottoman Sultan in recognition of the restoration of the Constitution. You'll also see, uh, in 1909, um, a response written by one member of this community, a man named Salum Mukarzal, who was the editor of the Arabic-language newspaper El Hoda. Um, and in fact, there were 21 Arabic-language dailies in the United States between 1892 and 1907, and 17 of them were in New York. So there's a very vibrant press culture. And in any case, this guy, Salum Mukarzal, He's responding to an editorial that had uh, appeared in the New York Times 
a few days before. And the title of the New York Times editorial is, Is the Turk a White Man? And as you can imagine from the racialized language that they're using, um, they're, they're trying to decide whether uh, Turkish immigrants are eligible for American citizenship, which at this time is defined essentially as being white. To summarize what this article said, they said, yes, the Turk is a white man. And uh, to give you a sense of, of the type of reasoning that was going on at this time, one line in the editorial is, they are a cruel and massacring people. This is, of course, referring to the Turk. Um, and they have lost none of their ancient proclivities. But they are also Europeans, as much white people as the Huns, Finns, and Cossacks. So here is the New York Times ruling in favor of Turks being eligible for citizenship in the United States on the basis of some phony racial science. And Salum Makarzal, uh, a native of Mount Lebanon, the newspaper man, um, the leader of one of the leaders of the Washington Street community, his response is, uh, I, I'll, I'll read a bit of his response. He writes, the attitude you have assumed in the question, is the Turk a white man? as expounded in your editorial under the above title on the 30th Ultimo should be readily approved and commended by those much qualified to judge as to the origin and evolution of the Turkish race. Your brief analysis of Turkish history is correct and authentic, but the main point at issue in this question, as it appears to me, is not the practicability of considering the Turk a white man, but the possibility of considering every Turk Turkish subject a Turk, eliminating in this general classification all distinction of race language and religion inasmuch as the cause which prompted this inquiry and discussion is the eligibility of turkish subjects to american citizenship so here again you see kind of the tortured racial logic of early 20th century america and we should also note that uh, they're, they're talking specifically about white men. White man is, is the classification for citizenship. And Mokarzl's response is essentially, okay, that's great. Uh, I, I agree with this argument that the, the Turk is a white man. But the problem is that not all people in the Ottoman Empire are Turks. So what happens with that? So we get a glimpse of the ways that migrants to the United States are trying to balance between the demands on them to justify their citizenship in terms of American racial politics and the fact that they live in a multicultural empire that doesn't necessarily fit easily with these categories. And if I can add to the mystery here of um, who exactly was in this um, little Syria. Now certainly again there was many people from the Mount Lebanon, greater Syria area. Um, but particularly following, it seems, the Young Turk Revolution, there seems to have been perhaps more Muslims arriving. Um, and some evidence of that that we have is um, from a mosque that once uh, stood around the corner from where we are at 17 Rector Street. Uh, and the evidence for this mosque uh, just came back to kind of public consciousness about a year ago. There was a couple stories in the New York Times and I believe in The Guardian. And an old story from the New York Sun was dug up from 1912 in which a reporter uh, had heard about a mosque down here. He calls it uh, a Muslim chapel in some places and he calls it a masjid uh, in others. And he came down to try to find it. And at that time, uh, there was a six-story tenement building. It's no longer there. Uh, it was called the Oriental. Uh, and on uh, the third floor, there was a mosque. And so he went there to find what he was calling the priest. Uh, at the mosque and looked around for him. 
Uh, and he saw kind of a big open room that would hold about 70 to 100 people. Um, he didn't find anybody. And uh, on the first and second floors, they were just selling kind of oriental wares. And on the basement floor, there was a barbershop. Uh, eventually, he finds the imam uh, in the Ottoman consulate here in New York. Um, and the imam, he is shocked to see uh, in Western, what he thinks of as kind of Western business clothes. And he says, uh, you wouldn't be able to distinguish this guy from a German professor. Wait, so, so this is the imam dressed up in, yes. in Western business clothes. And yes. this, this totally throws off the reporter. This throws off the reporter. He says, it looks like a German professor. That's his uh, kind of way of categorizing what he's seeing. Um, and he gets into a long conversation. Um, and uh, Do we have any sense for where the imam is from? Or We do. He was born in, well, in what he says is now a Russian territory, okay. right? So at some point during um, the Russo-Ottoman conflict, his family fled that okay. territory. We don't know exactly where. So one, to, one of the hundreds of thousands, if not exactly. millions, of refugees, uh, refugees who are, who are coming Istanbul. into the Ottoman Empire in the uh, 19th century. But, you know, he was a kind of a young radical under Abdul Hamid II. Uh -huh. And so he was driven into exile himself. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And he became a kind of itinerant uh, imam. And we know he was kind of traveled throughout the world uh, from uh, Zanzibar uh -huh. uh, to Ceylon to Mauritius. Uh -huh. He gets all the way to French Indochina uh -huh. uh, where he's apparently administering to Muslims. But after the Young Turk Revolution, he's invited back to the capital uh, and then given this nice post as the imam to the United States. Wow. So, yeah, he goes to D.C. They've already built a mosque there, but there's not really any Muslims in D.C. So they send him up to New York. And that in 1910, they established this mosque here at 17 Rector Street. Yeah. Of course, today, if people want to find Lebanese or Syrian pastries or other delicacies in New York, there are lots of places one could go. One could go to Bay Ridge. Um, but there's also a famous community on Atlantic Avenue yeah. in Brooklyn. Is there a connection between Atlantic Avenue and, and this community on Washington Street? Yeah, some of you might be able to picture this. That's where Sahadi's Groceries is and Damascus Bakery. Um, and those are direct uh, linkages to this neighborhood. Basically, as this neighborhood expanded and people grew a little wealthier, you could take the ferry right from Battery Park uh, at the foot of Washington Street to the foot of Atlantic Avenue. And there was a nice trolley line that would carry you up the street. And that's what was basically an extension of the Syrian colony. And so why is this no longer the Syrian colony today? Well, it was a man by the name of Robert Moses, one of him. the great uh, civil engineers of New York City who built most of its highways and tunnels and bridges. And, and also, also infamous for cutting through many cutting neighborhoods. Cutting through, I think, destroyed a couple dozen neighborhoods in the process, including ultimately this one, when he had the Battery Park Tunnel uh, built, a gigantic tunnel going under the bay, connecting Manhattan to Brooklyn. And that really kind of spelled the end and when of is this that? neighborhood. That's in the 1940s. Okay. Yeah. There is not much left to see here besides St. George's Bar. Uh, but I do want to mention there is a small park one block over at the foot of Greenwich Street uh, that the Washington Street Historical Society, they're basically the caretakers of the memory of Little Syria. Uh, they had some nice signs put up on the benches there and as part of the descriptive sign of the park itself um, about three years ago. And of course, these signs to the luminaries of the community, among them Khalil Gibran yeah. um, and Rehani. Um, uh, so uh, 
that that is also something that you can see. And we'll have links to the the Washington Street uh, memorial effort. Uh, yeah, and come down to St. George's and raise a glass. <laughs> While migrants from the Ottoman world were introducing New Yorkers to the pleasures of okra downtown on Washington Street, other things were happening uptown in Morningside Heights on the campus of Columbia University. It's here that we'll see another example of what happens when talk of civilizational difference meets the everyday life of people far from home. And we'll see too what life becomes for these people far from home once their political world begins to disintegrate. Okay, Bruce, so we're sitting outside of Earl Hall on the campus of Columbia University. Yeah, Earl Hall, um, students at Columbia know, is a resource for um, students, international students in particular, but also students of differing religions. Um, For example, the Muslim chaplain and some other... um, pastor-like figures are in here, and I say of different religions than the university's official religion, which is Episcopalianism. (laughs) Um, You know, Columbia has its roots in the Anglican Church, and even until the 1890s, Columbia's president had to be an Episcopalian. Um, And one of the last ones who had to follow this and had to convert uh, was a man named Seth Lowe, who really helped fund and build this beautiful campus here at Morningside Heights. It was his idea to build a beautiful library off of a, uh, opposite us. Today, it's the uh, low library. It's mostly administrative administrative buildings. And then right behind us, Earl Hall. Um, Earl Hall mirrors an Episcopalian church on the other side of the low library, uh, St. Paul's. But St. Paul's wasn't built yet when Earl Hall uh, was erected. That showed some of Lowe's priorities. He wasn't really big into the so, whole. So Seth Lowe, who yeah. converted to Episcopalian. Yeah, from being a Unitarian. From being a Unitarian. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Perhaps reveals his true priorities <laughs> by, not, by not he did the church first. Okay. <laughs> Much to the frustration of some later presidents. Uh, so uh, this had become a place for international students to meet by the early 1900s. And it's in that period that we find a very interesting student club called the Ottoman Student Club. The Ottoman Student Club. What did the Ottoman Student Club do? Well, um, it's probably no surprise they were actually students from the Ottoman Empire. But uh, the club was formed at a really um, special moment for the Ottoman Empire, and that was just after the Young Turk Revolution um, when the CUP took over. And many Americans, including several Columbia professors working in the Ottoman Empire, particularly with Robert College and some of the other American colleges, saw this as a new opportunity to establish ties. And so they set up um, a scholarship program for Ottoman students. And they brought over in 1911 five Ottoman students. And it was those students who formed the club. And uh, we see at their first meeting, though, there was already 15 students from the Ottoman Empire who showed up at the club. Um, so there was clearly already more Ottoman students here at Columbia in 1911 than just those brought over um, by the scholarship. And the Spectator, the student newspaper, reporting on it hinted at many more Ottoman students. And they were welcomed with some pretty grand words by um, the president, President Butler, 
of Columbia. He noted that he hoped that this exchange program um, or this scholarship program, I should say, uh, would help modern civilization break down the walls between East and West. And perhaps a little more <laughs> to our sentiments today, he said that taking in the Ottoman students was in fact a small repayment, as he called it, of the debt which the West owes the East. Um, and they had the consul, Jalal Bey, here in New York. He, uh, he had welcomed the students as well. He was a frequent visitor. They made the ambassador in Washington, Zia Pasha, the honorary president. Um, so it was a very high-minded affair, at least in its uh, founding. So there's a clear sense of the civilizational import, at least on the level of university officials and local Ottoman officials. Did they live up to those aims? Um, you know, probably to some degree. <laughs> uh, what they did was what most student clubs do, which is throw parties. Okay. <laughs> they had lots of what they called Turkish soirees. Uh -huh. And uh, basically they'd invite students from the university. They'd come drink Turkish coffee, eat sweets, uh, smoke, stay up late, dance. You know, some of these parties would go until midnight. Um, they became kind of, you know, big uh, affairs here. Uh, on the campus. And it was very clear that the students were a, m a big mix of uh, different ethnic and religious groups from the Ottoman Empire. So they might time. have had Turkish soirees, but they were not all necessarily identifying. Yeah. As Only a minority Turks. were what we would kind of think of as maybe Muslim Turk. Yeah. Uh, in those terms, there was many Armenians, Syrians, uh, as, you know, these are the terms they were using, right. Jews, uh, who are all come participate. Right. Uh, in this in this kind of um, this fun student club. Uh, they also here at Earl Hall, this is where the student clubs uh, met, they also had these wonderful Sunday dinners for international students. Um, we have a great letter from one of the Ottoman students writing in uh, to the spectator. It's some, I think the funding was about to be cut off. And so uh, he is making the case that they should keep them. And he's basically just talking about um, how you get to meet all these different pe different people from all over the world. But uh, one of the fun parts is that you're constantly basically putting your foot in your mouth because <laughs> he is, he puts it, you know, you mistake somebody who's Japanese as being from China. You mistake somebody who for being a Yankee, who's really from Virginia um, and so on. And you get the politics of their home country mixed up and they get angry at you. So he has this kind of, you know, funny story about, Every, you approach each new conversation with great trepidation, worried that you're going to embarrass yourself again. Uh, he clearly really loved these dinners. He um, compared the, the food to almost, you know, almost topping oriental, as he called it, oriental hospitality with the mounds of beans and sandwiches <laughs> and, and apples and dainties. Um, so clearly they were having uh, a pretty fun time. One of their highlights was they actually got a big celebrity in the Ottoman world, a Frenchman named Pierre Loti, uh, to come and visit the student club on a press tour. Yeah. And it's pretty hilarious because he only stayed for five minutes. <laughs> Just enough time to shake hands with all of the members of the club and one of the faculty members uh, and presumably say, thank you for having me. Mm. And the spectator reporter... Um, you know, makes a few jokes about how quickly he was <laughs> running off and his handlers were refusing interview <laughs> interviews in monosyllables. He's a busy man. Busy man. He went to the plaza next. Okay. So, you know, he had 
fancier places to be sure, sure. in Earl Hall. Um, but the student club, it lasts from 1911, but it only lasts a couple of years because, of course, March 1914 is their last meeting. They don't get to have the fall meeting because of what happens in August of 1914, which is World War One. And so what does World War One mean for their status as Ottoman students supposedly representing the East and the you know, great Western civilization? Uh, you know, at first it was just about, are they even allowed to stay? They're told to go home. They're told mm-hmm. to use their August stipends to go home in August of 1914. But they beg to stay. And eventually funding is arranged through the Carnegie Endowment, mm-hmm. actually, to keep them here for a while. Then eventually the Ottomans start paying again so they can finish their degrees. Uh, most of them had about two years left. So clearly they wanted to continue this mission. It was important enough to the Columbia uh, administration for them to finish. But by the time most of them actually finished, um, they couldn't get home. It was 1916. It was still right. the middle of the right. war. So the middle of the war. Yeah. And they became entangled even here in the United States in various ways. Um, they just got, you know, got involved. They couldn't, didn't know who to believe between what the consul was telling them, what Columbia was telling them, what they were reading in the newspapers. Um, but we do have some kind of interesting uh, firsthand accounts of, you know, how they saw the war going. And one of the most fascinating um, was the December of 1915. That, um, as the World War I buffs might know, was the defeat of the Allies at Gallipoli, right? Um, I mean, in looking back history today, contemporary history today, this is not necessarily seen even for the Ottomans as some kind of heroic moment, right? Um, But for one of the students here, his name was Jayavad Ayub. He was writing to the New York Times. He linked um, Gallipoli symbolically to the battle led 631 years before by Ertugul, the father of Osman, of course, the founder of the Ottoman dynasty. And he, you know, acknowledged that the Ottoman Empire lately had fallen to a little bit of a nadir, right, with the defeat in the Balkans. But Gallipoli was the history basically repeating itself. And that means it spelled a new beginning for the Ottomans. And he wrote that, quote, this will mark the beginning of a new ascending curve in Turkish history which will mean not only rise in power, but also in kultur, right, using the German. It will represent not a civilization as ordinarily conceived, which for an idealist is aimless and blind, but something different. The junction of the East and West will be the exponent of a newer form of attitude towards progress, which will combine the complacency and spirituality of the East with the material advancement of the West. So it's interesting because... He's presenting this event as the moment in which the Ottoman Empire will be reborn. And of course, in Turkish nationalism, the story is that Gallipoli was the point at which Turkish Turkish nationalism was was reborn in a lot of ways with Mustafa Kemal, of course, figuring prominently in that. Yeah, and you, I maybe you know maybe he eventually reread his own <laughs> article as somehow predicting that. But clearly, what he's thinking is the Ottoman Empire is going to go on right. for another right. many hundreds of years, um, and this is just the beginning. It just gives us that sense in the contemporary moment. It can be hard to predict the yeah, future. It's, it's always hard to predict the future, <laughs> you know? of course. Yeah. Um, so, you know, eventually the students were um, able to make 
most of them make their way home. Uh-huh. Um, what do, do we know what happened with this uh, prescient uh, letter writer? He had the very good fortune of meeting a girl from Brooklyn, marrying her, and then moved to Park Slope. Living happily ever, ever after? Uh, so I trust. Okay. Earl Hall, like many of the sites we've visited so far, bears little trace of its Ottoman past. And you probably wouldn't know of it unless you, too, have a habit of reading old issues of the Columbia Spectator, or you had the luck of bumping into me and Bruce with a microphone in front of the building on a sunny February afternoon. Our next stop is slightly less subtle than Earl Hall, though it's probably not something you would stumble upon by accident. If Topkapı Palace in Istanbul attests to the opulence of a glorious empire, this next site attests to something different, a glimpse of the complicated afterlives of this political entity. I find that I get pretty nervous once I'm on the, the mic and I'm unable to say anything. Apparently the secret is tricking yourself this is it. That's crazy. Okay, Bruce, we're standing on 73rd and Lexington. Why are we here? Well, you and I just walked past a very humble three-story apartment building on Lexington um, with a steakhouse on its ground floor storage space maybe on the second floor and an apartment on the third floor and we took a look at the doorbell and the doorbell is for a family called the Osmans. The Osmans. I've <laughs> heard I've heard of the Osmans. Famous family. <laughs> Famous family in Turkey. How how did they end up there living over a steakhouse? Well the apartment was home for 64 years to Ertuğrul uh, Osman and he was the last heir to the Ottoman throne born in the time of the Ottoman Empire. Um, he lived to be 97, so he only died in 2009. Okay. Um, there was a big obituary about him in the New York Times because he'd lived here since the 1940s. Yeah. So how did he end up coming here? Well, um, as many of uh, the listeners know, at the end of the Ottoman Empire, in the beginning of the Turkish Republic, um, there, there was a few juggling around of possible roles for the, the Ottoman royal family. It was decided that, in fact, they had to go. They risked too much of a risk of, you know, wanting power back uh, or some such. And so they were banished in 1924. And at that time, um, Ertuğrul's cousin was the caliph. Um, his, so Ertuğrul's grandfather was uh, Abdulhamid II. And at that time, Ertuğrul was actually not in, in Istanbul. He was in uh, Vienna in boarding school and <laughs> playing soccer when he got the news that he couldn't go home. Um, so he basically, like all the others in the Osman family, 
he had to find his way uh, elsewise in the world. And he eventually invested in some mining companies in South America, uh, but eventually ended up here in New York. And he married um, another daughter of royalty. She was the niece to the former king of Afghanistan and the daughter of one of Turkey's uh, first gynecologist. And she presumably is still living at the apartment we just walked by. Um, and they lived here in the Upper East Side. Um, they were well known around the neighborhood, in particular because they had 12 dogs. Uh, <laughs> and, and because they also lived in a rent-controlled apartment, which is the great envy of every <laughs> New Yorker. <laughs> they paid just a few hundred dollars a month for decades. Uh, so an heir to one of the most yeah. powerful empires in world history yeah. ends up in a rent-controlled apartment. Yeah, and to be fair, they did take Domo Bacha Palace away from him okay. uh, as Osman V. So, you know, you have to have a small, uh, small compensation. But um, he was allowed to return to Turkey in 1992 okay. at that time. And he hadn't been there in the interim? He had not. Nope. Nobody had been allowed. And... In terms of citizenship, is, is, he, was well, he a Turkish citizen? Well, um, late in life, he eventually was. But very interestingly, he never became an American citizen. In fact, he kept his Ottoman passport. And he insisted on traveling on his Ottoman passport. He had a lawyer draw up a nice letter explaining that he was an Ottoman citizen, even though this place no longer existed, and that he should be allowed to pass. Um, certainly, his pedigree must have helped sure. uh, that work. And it actually, he traveled on that passport until September 11th, 2001. It was only after that when American security measures and world security measures really, you know, uh, got much more strict that he was forced to take a passport and he took a Turkish passport at that point. So we might say that 9-11 yeah, absolutely. ultimately ends, ends the meaning of the Ottoman Empire. Certainly, in, in legal he, I mean, undoubtedly, terms. he was the last Ottoman citizen traveling on an Ottoman passport. <laughs> You know, if we're thinking about thinking about the last Ottoman in so many different ways here, the last to be born in the time of the empire, and certainly the last to carry that passport for so many decades. Um, and when he returned to Turkey, um, you know, he was very humble. Besides his little passport thing, he wasn't political in any way. And of course, he had renounced all claims to his throne. Um, but he was allowed to go visit Domabacha Palace and very typical of him. He insisted on going on the public tour, you know, it's hard to imagine because this is of course a place he had played as a child and, uh, I'm sure getting to see it again was, um, something special. He made one or two other state visits, um, in the mid two thousands. Uh, but it was here in New York that he died, um, in 2009. I'm going back down to NYU. Okay, are you getting in the queue over here? Are you going to be queued? Yeah. Right Hello, guys. Hello. Take a ride. This has been a special episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. It was produced by Chris Grayton and Sachil Gilmaz and received editing help from Ariane Urus. Please visit our website at ottomanhistorypodcast.com where you can find a bibliography, a map, as well as photographs of some of the sites we visited. 
You'll also find links to Bruce Burnside's New York City History and Walking Tour podcast, which is entitled City Between, and I highly recommend it. City Between features stories ranging from the birth of Santa Claus as we know him to the legacy of slavery on Wall Street. We're also aware that there are plenty of stories left out of this account of Ottoman New York. There are stories that you'd like to share. Leave us a comment and let us know. I'm not